0: I needed to not skate by for once in my life, and they didn't let me. At the end of the day, if you know
1: that you don't feel good about the job, you got to be able to leave that behind. They
0: just kept asking me to come back, and I truly love Milwaukee and Southeast
1: Wisconsin. It's always great to be on WTMJ. This is WTMJ Conversations.
2: Welcome to WTMJ Conversations. I'm your host, Libby Collins. In the last nine years, over 100 adolescents in Wisconsin have died of an opioid overdose. And with the counterfeit fentanyl-laced drugs like Adderall, Xanax, THC, vape oils, ecstasy, sadly, those deaths continue to rise. And there has to be an answer. What can we do to save them? Well, George Moore, whose own son lost his battle with addiction, wants things to change. And George is here with us. And George, I'm I'm going to have to start by having you tell your story about your son, George.
1: Thanks, Libby. Yeah, um, my son George Moore the fourth. Five weeks before he overdosed from a heroin overdose, my wife and I, Cindy, we never even knew we weren't aware he even had a opioid addiction problem subsequent after he died we found out that his addiction problem started in high school when he was prescribed a opioid for a sports injury he got caught up in all that he started experiment use uh, opioids socially We also found out that in the 2000s, he died seven years ago in 2016, but he attended uh, New Berlin West High School in the 2000s and um, a lot of the parties had alcohol and Oxycontin and a lot of prescription opioids because that's when the whole opioid epidemic was raging. He went off to college at UWM, double major, finance and accounting, continued his habit, you know, misusing. We found out also later that uh, he actually tried to be clean in college and went to a methadone clinic in the inner city. It worked for a couple years, we found out, but uh, somehow he relapsed and um, started in again. So he went missing five weeks before he overdosed. When we found him, we tried to get him into a detox clinic, but you've got to be aware, like most parents, like Cindy and I, we didn't grow up with the opioid epidemic we don't know anything about opioids so we weren't prepared you know to find treatment uh, detox facility for him so we had to scramble Back then, there weren't very many. They were all full. Rogers Memorial, the Dewey Center, Aurora Behavioral Health. So George detoxed at home, and I just want to let you know, if you've ever gone through that, it's the worst two days of your life. Finally...
2: Well, let me stop you there, George. When you say it's the worst two days of your life, what happened?
1: Oh, watching someone detox from being addicted to heroin for years hallucinations tried to steal a car twice and you know run away my daughter was in medical school she was helping out you know we found him in the basement with a needle in his arm trying to inject something that wasn't even an opioid he was so desperate so it's just tragic um, that there aren't enough detox facilities, even today. The other thing is detox costs ten to $12,000 for two days, so a lot of times people can't afford it. He didn't have insurance. He was off hours because he was over 26. But finally, he had a heart problem, his blood pressure. My daughter said we got to get him to the emergency room. Was the did. heart
2: problem caused by the addiction?
1: Correct, Yeah. And a lot of people don't know this, but uh, dirty needles and addiction does cause heart problems, and people have to have valve transplants and everything else. It's a big burden on the medical community, especially when you don't have insurance, even when you do have insurance. So uh, we got him into Aurora. He was two days in there, and then we got him into uh, the Dewey Center over in Watosa for 28 days.
2: Once he got out of the Dewey Center, was he clean?
1: He was clean. You can't be because even when you leave, like we'd pick him up for church, he has to, you know, test, urine test. And if you don't stay clean, you get kicked out of the program. So I don't know how much you know about rehabilitation, but 28 days is not enough. And um, actually, an organization, well, I belong to the Addiction Resource Council. I was on the heroin task force. It's a long story. Once. He died. I got involved in the addiction community.
2: How long after he went through withdrawal, did rehab, did he pass away?
1: Three days. And he refused to take any drugs. He said, Dad, I've been on drugs most of my life. I don't want to take any maintenance drugs. And unfortunately, we found him dead on his basement floor on a Friday morning at 11 o'clock.
2: You just went to check on him?
1: We were supposed to go golf and he played high school golf he was a good golfer and he had to break into the house and we couldn't revive him
2: coming up on WTMJ conversations
1: we found out the day he went missing and that was five weeks before he died
2: George Moore reveals how he found out his son was addicted to drugs
0: You're listening to WTMJ Conversations.
2: Welcome back. I'm Libby Collins. We're talking with George Moore. Let's find out more about his experience with his son. You said that you and your wife, Cindy, weren't aware that he was doing drugs as early as high school when he was, what, 15, 16 years old? Correct. How did you find out originally that he was addicted?
1: We found out the day he went missing. And that was five weeks before he died. We never knew.
2: A lot of people would say, wait a minute, you lived with him, he was under your roof. There was no difference in his behavior.
1: Well, you know, when you don't know what to look for, and then after his death, you what if yourself to death, then you start to realize, after you learn more about opioid addiction, hey, you know, he was thin. You know, hey, he didn't eat all the time, you know, motivational things. But hey, hey, he went to college, he graduated. He he did
2: his grades suffer at all?
1: No. And uh, the thing is, is when you learn a lot about opioid addiction, which I have, you can be a functional opioid addict for a long time. And there's people out there with addiction for five years, ten years. Yeah. It's not like being an alcoholic.
2: All right, you had other kids, and were they older or younger than George?
1: I have a daughter who's two years younger.
2: She never noticed anything? No. Did she hear anything? Because they were in the same high school, I would assume. Correct. And you said that this was going on at parties and various events. She never heard through the grapevine that her brother might be involved in something. No. Was she aware that there were kids at the school who were using?
1: I think so, but... um... You know she never said anything to us, and i'm she's the type of person that, if she knew her brother was in harm's way, she would have done something about it. She's a doctor now, she's a neurologist at Freard.
2: You said that he was in sports mm-hmm. once his addiction began this he did he continue?
1: No, that's another sign, new set of friends. Dropped out of basketball after ninth grade. But he played varsity golf. So he told us, you know, Dad, I've played these team sports all my life. I just like to do an individual sport I can carry through life. How can you argue with that? Tennis, golf. He was a good golfer. You know, so college, you know, he did intramural sports and stuff. So What
2: about his room? When his mom would go in to sort of clean things up, and I'm assuming... Like most parents, you go in there periodically. Nothing seemed to miss, didn't see anything.
1: Well, maybe another sign was hey, I don't want to live in my room upstairs on the second floor. I'd rather live in the bedroom with a bathroom in the garage that had a garage to basement entrance. So he could kind of come and go as he pleased.
2: How old was he?
1: He was a junior in high school.
2: You didn't think to watch that situation?
1: We watched it. I don't want to say uh, ignorant to it, but innocent to it. I guess would be the best word for it. You
2: mentioned that his group of friends changed. Explain what his friends were like prior to the addiction versus after the addiction.
1: A lot of them remained in sports, didn't see him coming around to the house, but a good portion of his friends later in life were also opioid and heroin addicts
2: none of them seemed off to you
1: no not at all I mean kids kids behavior come on I grew up a heroin addict was taking his needle water out of the gutter you know now opioids are raging throughout America 107,000 deaths last year no blind I wish I would have more educated on it I wish there was more awareness for parents back then I wish there was more awareness for parents now
2: you said earlier even when he was in high school, these parties were going on, you found out that there was opioid use at the parties and other drugs. Was it just that group of kids that he was hanging out with, or were there were a lot of kids who were using?
1: My understanding, a lot of kids. After he overdosed, I started asking questions of other parents whose kids had been through rehab. Some had died Some are still addicted to heroin or opioids.
2: Had any of his friends overdosed while he was still in school?
1: One friend died while in school.
2: That wasn't a wake-up call to you?
1: Didn't know what he died of. You know, that's the days when people in uh, obituaries didn't put, hey, my son passed away and he died of an opioid.
2: But Uh, your son never told you?
1: No, no. Hey, what did he die of? some heart problem. You know, everything was a cover-up.
2: Still ahead on WTMJ Conversations.
1: It's like, wow, why didn't I recognize this? Where was I?
2: George Moore talks about the guilt he feels about his son's overdose.
0: Now, more of WTMJ Conversations.
2: Welcome back. I'm your host, Libby Collins. Let's return to our conversation with George Moore. Were they using in school, in class, in high school?
1: Oh, they're probably using in the parking lot and going to school high. You betcha.
2: (laughs) I mean, do you know that for a fact or just guessing?
1: I'm guessing, but...
2: All right, and you said he went to UWM. Not an easy school to get into.
1: No, in business school and graduated double major.
2: So once he started there, when he was living on campus, was he in the dorm the first couple years? One year. All right. Anything go on while he was in the dorm that you know of?
1: Not that I know of. Don't know.
2: But he wanted to go out on his own. That was his idea? To move out of the dorm?
1: Well, you know, most kids only stay in the dorm at UWM freshman year, like at Madison where I went. And then he moved around with a real good friend. And two of his best friends that I still keep in contact today never knew he used now go figure that out
2: his roommate
1: roommates never knew he used you can hide it you can live with it
2: when george first beat the addiction how much did he open up to you about what had been going on
1: well the first time we didn't know he beat the addiction him and his girlfriend that he was living with at the time We found out afterwards, she was hell-bent on getting him clean, and she was a big help.
2: But she never came to you?
1: Never came to us. So, and maybe he's told her not to. We did not know anything until five weeks before he overdosed and died. We were supposed to go on a trip to Peru with him and do the Inca Trail with his girlfriend. He was supposed to go in and get his shots. He didn't do it because he was always afraid. He never went to the doctor because he didn't want to get a blood test and find heroin in his system.
2: Was he able to work at all during any of these years? Did he have a job? Oh yeah,
1: he had a job. He had a job with a real good friend of ours. He was in the business field, financial. Yeah, went to work.
2: Nobody ever said, something's off with him.
1: Nope. Yeah, his boss spoke at his funeral.
2: How do you think he was able to hide this from so many people for so long?
1: When you meet and talk to people that are in sporadic, you know, they claim they'll do anything to cover it up and hide their addiction. They spend most of their day trying to hide it and try to lead a normal life. So,
2: Do you think you ever saw him when he was high?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, when I look back, yeah.
2: I mean, his behavior had to be somewhat erratic.
1: Well, I mean, maybe he's got a cold. You know, I don't know.
2: Why did you not ask more questions?
1: Because I didn't sense there was a problem. If I sensed there was a problem, I would have done something about it. But we did not sense there was a problem you know and you got to remember after high school we didn't see him a lot you're off away at college he's home for the holidays once in a while we'd hook up with him on weekends but you know I never was a helicopter parent so go do your thing yeah I wish we would have known I wish I was more educated back then there's a lot of awareness that needs to take place for parents, especially the ones that grew up in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s, because the opioid epidemic with doctors prescribing prescription opioids like Vicodin, Percocets, Oxycodone, you know, that didn't start till the mid 90s. And but, they handed them out like candy, Libby.
2: But you said he had a sports injury. So you did know he was prescribed this.
1: Yeah, but a five-day prescription I didn't know. The CDC says you can get hooked in three days. So you're
2: saying with just a five-day supply, that was enough to get him addicted. Yeah. I want to go back to the day that George died. Do you have any idea where he got those drugs that day?
1: We do, because his cell phone, and we found some numbers on there that I hadn't recognized. They were one of his dealers. And he got the heroin from the dealer on Thursday. He missed his first outpatient. Didn't know about it. He had gotten some drugs from this guy. He um, ended up taking them. And what happens is when you go through treatment, your body gets clean. But what happens is a lot of people go back to their regular dose. And they overdose because the amount of drugs they take, which normally would get them high or make them feel better because at that state you're just trying to feel good you know you're putting so much heroin into your body he probably put in a normal level and then he had respiratory arrest depression that's what an opioid does when you take too much you quit breathing
2: was that heroin laced with anything
1: cocaine and that's what a lot of people do you know they're on heroin but they put the cocaine in it but it kind of get a lift because heroin's a depressant. So it negates the depressant effect.
2: The Milwaukee detective was able to identify this person. The number. Okay.
1: Yeah. So
2: nothing happened?
1: No, never caught the guy. Other numbers on there helped Milwaukee drug enforcement officers track down some sellers. And there was a major bust down the road about a year later.
2: That was linked to this.
1: Yeah. I had his wallet. There was phone numbers in there at drug dealers. So we turned all that over to the Milwaukee Police Department and they made use of it. So that's good.
2: Once you got over the shock of his death, and I'm sure there was a grieving period, who were you most angry with?
1: The person who sold him the heroin. I was so mad I could have killed the guy if he was in front of me. I was mad at the system because 28 days, if you ask anyone, isn't enough. We have a foundation, the G4 Recovery Fund, and we raise money through a run, Ethan's run, and a golf outing in George's name. We raise about $115,000 to $25,000 a year. And a big majority of that goes to the Dewey Center for... Rehab assistance. So when someone gets out of the 28D rehab, there's an opportunity for them to stay at the Culver House, which Kurt Culver from MGIC poured a lot of money into. And we help pay for their extra stay because we found out through data that if someone can stay in a clean environment for an extra four to eight months, On campus they can come and go they live with other people that are practicing variety they have a relapse rate of about one to two times versus someone that goes back out to his dirty environment after 28 days a seven to eight times relapse I wish he would have stayed on campus it could have been full then there's only 15 rooms it's always full and there's a wait list. I wish he would have taken a maintenance drug that would, uh, if he took heroin, block the receptors in his brain so he wouldn't have overdosed. Like I said, you know, we what ifed ourselves to death.
2: Do you blame yourself at all for not seeing this earlier?
1: Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. Because afterwards, it's like, wow. Why didn't I recognize this? Why didn't I recognize this best friend went to rehab and left Madison his freshman year? Where was I? You know, you're busy at work, blah, 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 but wow, I just encourage parents to pay more attention to what's going on at the home and in their schools with their children, because yeah, most definitely.
2: Coming up on WTMJ Conversations,
1: the issue now with adolescents is non-opioid drugs are spiked with fentanyl.
2: George Moore talks about the real threat of buying drugs on the street.
0: You're listening to WTMJ Conversations.
2: And I'm Libby Collins. Our guest today is George Moore.
1: Last year in March, they signed the bill in for the fentanyl test strips. They decriminalized them. And believe me, a lot of them are being used because the issue now with adolescence is um, non-opioid drugs that you mentioned, Libby, are spiked with fentanyl. And, you know, kids could be on Adderall in high school and junior high, you know, ADHD. And then they get to college and um, they might not be on Adderall anymore. They got a big exam coming. They're getting excited and they try to find Adderall on the street well they find it from someone in a bar it might not be prescription Adderall it might be counterfeit according to the DEA six out of ten pills on the street are laced with fentanyl these kids might not be addicted to opioids but they're taking non-opioid drugs with fentanyl in a it's killing them you know 2 milligrams of fentanyl the weight of a mosquito can kill an adult so these kids are vaping with oil with fentanyl in it they're taking Xanax Adderall ecstasy it's in everything Meth, where are coke. they
2: getting it? where are they getting this
1: you can get it you know it's funny there's um the youth behavioral report study nationally says 22% of kids, when they respond to the survey nationwide, says they can get illicit drugs in their school system. So they're there.
2: You're talking high school?
1: High school. Middle school.
2: Yeah. Are these kids working? Where are they getting the money to buy these drugs?
1: Yeah, well i don't know i mean they might have jobs like george had you know i'm not sure i mean on the street a prescription vicodin is a dollar a milligram So, 20 milligram on the street prescription drug is twenty dollars i mean you run out of money awful fast and turn to heroin but these other drugs like adderall and xanac they're not that expensive and you got to remember the dea confiscated 50 million counterfeit pills last year, and 13,400 pounds of fentanyl, enough to kill everyone in the United States. And they figured they got 15% of it. So these drugs are all over.
2: Did you ever sit down with him and talk about drugs when he was young?
1: Yeah, we did. Alcohol, marijuana, the things we were familiar with. Opioids. Didn't know anything about them. Wouldn't even have brought it up.
2: What was your instruction to him at that time?
1: Don't do alcohol. You know, he played sports, he could get kicked off the golf team, don't smoke marijuana.
2: What was his reaction when you talk about
1: this? Yeah, Dad.
2: Kind of dismissive? Yeah, I gotcha. I know it's a hard question, George, but as you reflect back, what would you have done differently? Or would you have done anything differently?
1: Well, I think I would have had the knowledge to do something differently, and I didn't have the knowledge. Of the opioid epidemic that was raging in America you know now when something comes up on the news or an article you know I gravitate to it because I'm working on prevention education harm reduction and rehabilitation assistance I know a lot about the problem now in American in Wisconsin back then they talk about hey someone died of an opioid overdose and yeah okay But, you know, there's more opioid overdoses in Wisconsin than there is, you know, shooting deaths and and deaths in car accidents. But where is that on the news? (laughs) You know, we don't hear about it.
2: What advice do you have for parents?
1: Get educated and and be aware. Um, There are programs, you know, that they offer through different organizations, like through the Addiction Resource Council we ended up merging with your choice out of Oconomowoc and they actually have a bedroom that you can go through and it shows where kids hide drugs there's a backpack where you can schools can purchase the backpack and it shows everything the backpack where kids hide drugs false coke cans etc pins so get educated not only the parents but encourage your school systems 6th, 7th and 8th grade to have a professional drug education program because that's where it starts it's starting in 6th grade
2: coming up on WTMJ conversations
1: it doesn't end up well kids just don't quit drugs it's a lifelong thing
2: George Moore talks about things he would have done differently
0: You're listening to WTMJ Conversations.
2: Welcome back to our conversation with George Moore, whose own son died from an opioid overdose. I'm your host, Libby Collins. If you knew then what you know now, would you have violated your son's privacy and gone into his room and checked (laughs) pens and backpacks and under mattresses and any other potential hiding place?
1: Most definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Most definitely.
2: Would you tell other parents to do that? Oh,
1: yeah. You better. Because it doesn't end up well. Kids just don't quit drugs. (laughs) You know, it's it's a lifelong thing. You know, you're an alcoholic, you're an alcoholic for life. You're an addict, you're an addict for life. You could be sober, but there's always potential to relapse. So I go to the hospital I get calls from friends, hey, my nephew's in the hospital, he overdosed, he almost froze to death in the snow, he's going to lose his leg. And I go in and talk to these kids. You know, they're 23 and 24 years old, and I look at them and I see my son's eyes.
2: What do you say to them?
1: I encourage them to get help. Usually they're so desperate they need help. So we work with them to get them into rehabilitation. Now, a lot of them don't have insurance. So that's a problem. But, you know, we try to get them into rehab and try to get them sober.
2: So, have you had success with Oh, ever? yeah.
1: Yeah, we have. And there's some really good stories. And then there's not so good stories.
2: Coming up on WTMJ Conversations.
1: School boards. Principals, superintendents, they don't want parents asking.
2: George Moore talks about what needs to change in Wisconsin to reduce overdose deaths.
0: Now, more of WTMJ Conversations.
2: I'm Libby Collins. Today's conversation is with George Moore. George, I know you're doing a lot with the foundation, and can you give me an idea of what's available for parents... For people who might have this addiction through the foundation?
1: Well, I mean, if you knew your son or daughter had an opioid addiction and you were working for treatment, you definitely should have Narcan in your home in case they overdose at home. Definitely get them into rehabilitation. I mean, you're a parent in high school. You do have the ability to... Make the individual go to rehab because he's under 18. Parents have to be on top of what's going on in their kids' lives, especially when it comes to illicit drugs because they're out there. And a lot of parents, oh, it's not my kid. We speak to school superintendents. I spoke to one a couple years back trying to get our drug education program in there. And he says, yeah, we really need it. I've gone to nine funerals and they didn't go with our education program, they still have no drug education. So, here's the problem. There's still a stigma out there. Awareness is an issue, but what happens is you go to schools, you have a drug problem. You might not admit to it. You might not want to put an overdose aid kit up with Narcan in it next to the AED because people are going to look at it and say, oh my God, there's a Narcan kit. The school must have a drug problem. What is my kid doing here? You know, there's a lot of that. School boards, principals, superintendents. They don't want to expose it because they don't want parents asking. But then there's other schools we've been to, like Appleton School District, Nina School District, a lot of private schools, all the Lutheran schools here. They all have overdose aid kits displayed. So there's principals and superintendents. They get it. We're worried about the ones that don't get it. Or don't want to get it. You know what we need, Libby? You hate to say it, we need a few civil liability cases against schools when their kid dies and they don't have Narcan available to wake people up. I hate to say it. We are one of the worst states in America for addiction loss. There's 38 states with acute pain opioid prescription protocols that allow doctors only to prescribe opioids for three to five to seven days with acute pain. We have no law. When we bring it up, never going to pass. We're the only state where you don't have to check the prescription drug monitoring program. That's where all doctors and pharmacists have to check that to see uncontrolled substances. It records everyone in Wisconsin when they've had their last controlled substance prescription, you know, so you don't have the old drug shopping that you used to have. Everyone running around the hospital saying, I got a bad back in the emergency room and getting prescription opioids, you know, to take care of their habit. So the EPDMP system in 2017, you don't have to check the system if it's a three-day or less opioid prescription. Really? When you can get addicted in three days to an opioid prescription and you don't have to check it? 40% of the 3 million opioid prescriptions in Wisconsin each year, 40% are from surgeons and orthopedic surgeons. 9% from dentists. What is a dentist doing prescribing opioids for a toothache? Think about it. We grew up without opioids. What we take? Aspirin, Advil... <laughs> Why are they prescribing opioids to patients when 800 milligrams and Tylenol will fit the bill 85% of the time? And we're not talking chronic. We're talking acute. The kid who breaks his wrist like my son shouldn't be getting opioids in the emergency room. So it's gotten better on opioid prescriptions all across the country, but what? The opioid deaths are still going up, so it's more than just the prescription, but you got to remember, four out of five heroin addicts started on prescription opioids.
2: George Moore, thank you for sharing your story. Thank you. Opioids and fentanyl are not just a tragedy for a single family, but many people are being affected by the loss that they see with these overdose deaths. A few weeks back, I had the opportunity to talk with former Attorney General Bill Barr about the problem. Sir, what's motivated you to take on this cause? Well, the ravaging of our
0: communities, and especially young people with counterfeit drugs, I think we all know the very acute problem that fentanyl poses and how drugs are being made to look like Adderall, Percocet, Xanax, and so forth, but they actually contain potentially lethal amounts of fentanyl, and that's what's driving all the drug overdose deaths.
2: Where are these pills coming from, specifically?
0: Well, the pills that involve fentanyl are coming from Mexico. The fentanyl itself, the precursors, the chemicals that are used to make fentanyl come mainly from China, but they also come from places like India. And then the pills are fabricated and they're made to look like and labeled as legitimate drugs like Xanax and Percocet and so forth. They're not distributed in the drug stores. They're distributed over the Internet and through social media. And that's what's causing most of the uh, increase in drug overdose right now.
2: Now, My understanding is that between like 2019 and 2021, deaths from fake pills more than doubled. Was this crisis on your radar while you were heading the Justice Department?
0: Oh, yes. It was overall drug deaths, mainly by opioids. And when I went into the department, it was approximately 70,000 a year, and it was flat initially. And then during the very last part of my tenure, the fentanyl started being introduced in very high amounts. And we actually brought down opioid deaths initially because A lot of those were due to the diversion of legitimate opioid made in the United States and then diverted out of the market. And once we started getting a hold of that, unfortunately, fentanyl started coming in and these Mexican pills. And that's the thing that has been out of control since I left office. We've had the numbers soar now up to 109,000 overdoses deaths a year, and that's driven by the fentanyl.
2: We've been talking with George Moore. A Brookfield father who lost his son to opioid abuse. Former Attorney General Bill Barr also shared his thoughts on fentanyl coming into this country and what a threat it is. Milwaukee County is currently recruiting businesses and organizations to host additional harm reduction vending machines, all to combat death from overdose. If you want to hear more, you can go to WTMJ.com and hear the entire interview. And you can also find a partial transcript courtesy of eCourt Reporters. For WTMJ Conversations, I'm Libby Collins.